Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we, as always, unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I am Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined by Danny Crichton today. Danny, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Fantastic. Danny is our managing editor, if you didn't know. And uh, today we are back on the guest train. We have NEA's Rick Yang here. Rick, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Good to be back, actually, with Good you to be back. because if you go back in time all the way to 2017, which now feels like, you know, 1983, <laughs> um, you were on the show. You were on the 25th episode back in the old office, the old studio. So thank you for being one of our rare return uh, guests. Yeah, excited to be here. Good. Uh, there's some gaming stuff. So you're actually like the perfect person to have on today because awesome. whenever we talk on the phone, we talk about work for one minute and then games for like 25. Exactly. Always makes it for a good time. Uh, and then critically, uh, you like gaming, uh, barbecue, and then incorrectly, the Dallas Cowboys. Oh. I oh. mean. I mean, I grew up in Texas. What do you expect? I mean, taste is what I expect. <laughs> <that>. um, <laughs> it's all good. And just put that in context. Uh, the last time you were here, we were talking about Apple just inching towards being a trillion dollar company. Wow. Um, now they're worth like 1.4 and now everyone else is worth a trillion. So time does fly. Yes. All right. Uh, oh, quickly before we go. NEA, you've been there since when? 2007. 2007, so about 13 years now. Yeah, All right. long time. That, that is, that's a long time. Um, we're going to go ahead and kick off with, as always, some early stage funding round-ish stuff. And uh, this time we're going to start with Sendoso, which raised $40 million after growing 330% in 2019. A couple of things to point out about this round. Uh, first off, I love it when companies share hard metrics. And in this case, we have a, a, a number that I can kind of dig into. Um, 330% is not an ARR figure. It's a trailing revenue figure. So 2018 versus 2019. Danny, how often do you talk to companies now that share metrics like this? Is this getting more common? I don't think it's getting more common. I think we still see almost exclusively funding announcements. Yeah. But I mean, when companies do raise though, they tend to share more, I think, than they used to like three or four years ago. I think there's more and more, particularly at the latest stages when you talk, um, more and more people are sharing profitability or their target mm -hmm. for profitability. So there's more and more concern around that post SoftBank. But I think you know, we rarely see ARR growth or, so, or those metrics being released to the public. I wish we saw more of, it, I guess, is maybe what I'm saying, because I feel like there's uh, fewer reporters covering the venture capital kind of funding world, like the, the per round stuff. And so if companies want to stand out more, sharing metrics, I think, is the easiest way to kind of get my attention, because then I know so much more about the, the quality of the business. Well, I mean, 330% growth is something to be proud of. So, I, you know, I don't think it's that bad of a thing to share that. No, I mean, it's essentially a big brag, I yeah. feel. Um, but Sendoso, uh, if you haven't heard of them, it took me a while to figure out kind of what they do. And I, I talked to the CEO and he was working in sales and he was sending out things, kind of doing like, I think what's called account-based marketing, if I recall correctly. And uh, he wanted to kind of productize that and the demand for sending things to people in the real world if you work in kind of a digital place is huge, turns out. And uh, the, the market reaction has been enormous and they put together this huge, uh, $40 million Series B led by Oak uh, HCFT, which is, I think, healthcare fintech. I think that's how that acronym kind of breaks down. Um, I hadn't heard of them before this. And I'm kind of curious, Rick, before we were prepping for the show, had you actually heard of Sendoso? I have heard of Sendoso. Okay. How long ago did you first hear about them? Uh, a couple of years ago. They've been growing nicely and, and um, they're not that old of a company, but they've definitely made a splash in the market. Yeah, I mean, so do, do you hear about them in terms of their product or about their growth the first time they kind of came across your radar? Both. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Why isn't NEA in the company? <laughs> There's all sorts of reasons why NEA <laughs> wouldn't be in the company. <laughs> um, Danny, though, we've seen people using text messages as a channel uh, to drive high engagement. Does this feel like a... Um, have a variation on that theme or something a bit different as a, as a product goal. I think we occasionally talk about growth marketing on, on, on the 
program here, but I think one of the challenges for a lot of growth marketers today is is channel saturation. You know, you go to social media, you go to digital ads, very high CPMs, very high um, CPAs, and um, you know people are overwhelmed. Like Instagram, your feed's already at you know one quarter ads. On Twitter, it's sort of similar to me, although I have a blue check, so it's a little bit better. <laughs> but you know, I, I think people are you know particularly for marketers, they're looking for other channels, right? So we've seen a couple of startups invested where they're targeting text messages. Mm-hmm. which have 95, 98% sort of engagement rates, and it's still sort of an undersaturated channel. You know, most of the texts you're getting are from friends and family. And then I think this is the same thing. Uh, you know, in the mail today, I only get things from my insurance company complaining about, oh, you know, a complicated bill that you should, like, pay at some point. And so, you know, if I get a gift in the mail, all of a sudden from a company, I'm like, oh, this is super nice. It's super interesting. You know, in the last year, I keep getting every month, like, this gift box from Target, hmm. which is like a sample box that they're like, hey, here's 10 new things to try from Target. And, and I don't think it's ever led to a purchase, but it's been an interesting kind of marketing channel that I otherwise wouldn't experience. But you remember it. I do remember it. Right. In and, the context of Sendoso, I remember it. And you give this <laughs> a, a huge shout out. So now it's never going to stop. Like you are now stuck with that for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been talking to a lot of people in fintech about, about channel saturation, and I'm trying to nail down a story on fintech CAC. And I, I had this hypothesis and I, I failed to actually find anyone who agrees with me. I think there's, there's more room in fintech to kind of grow before CAC gets crazy. But I think this sort of stuff will become more common as startups mature and there's more competition for space in places like Instagram because there's not really more ad inventory probably there to use right. without ruining the experience. So right. there's a cap probably to how much is being. Yeah. And look, the, the incremental cost of sending that next email on that drip marketing campaign is reaching zero, right? So you really have to stand out. And um, this is one way to stand out. It's actually not easy to do when you are sending things and at scale. So it makes sense that they're growing as fast as they are. Yeah, and they're doing the hard work of like warehouses, software, plugging into CRMs. Like it isn't just sending stuff to people. They're doing it in a relatively intelligent fashion. Right. So it's a legit biz. So well, yeah, particularly in mean, the DTC category, we've seen a lot of retail store openings. You know, Warby Parker now has like, what, two dozen stores and a bunch of the other brands also have opened physical locations. I think this is like a nice intermediate zone, right? Like you don't necessarily have to open a full retail store build out the full foot footprint, you can still have a physical kind of marketing channel model without sort of all that infrastructure in place. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to uh, to Phoenix, a company that I, I've known for a little bit, actually. And they just put together a round this week that I thought was pretty damn exciting. They raised a $35 million Series B. So as far as a B goes, a relatively large one, even kind of by 2020 standards, led by Sequoia. Activent was in there, Inspire Capital as well. They raised now $55 million total. And um, they're kind of like payments infra. And what's really fun about them and why they stuck out to me when I was just deciding to kind of cover this one is they're a SaaS company working in payments. And so they're not in the game to take like a percentage cut of payments that they, they help other companies do. Instead, they're a standard enterprise SaaS company. And so I think that stands out in the increasingly competitive world of payments as, as an innovative way to not capture too much value from customers effectively. Well, I think that's a big part of their thesis, right? Which is look, we're going to lower the cost of payments, turn it into a revenue center, and we're actually not going to take a whole lot of the, the additional margin that you get from that. Mm-hmm. And so you keep that. We'll run our business as a SaaS business. We think there's plenty of market space out there to run and build a big company here. Yeah, and so to, to break that down for people who aren't as read up on payments, like imagine if you're like, like a yoga studio, right? I think this is the example they love to use. Um, you can pay so much for software. You can only really afford, you only have so much kind of gross margin available to pay for stuff. But if you build payments into that software and you let that company kind of like accept payments in, they can drive a lot more revenue for all the transactions that happen through their Yoko Studio and build a relatively material second revenue stream. And, and Phoenix says you can keep that, as you said, and then we'll just charge you like a regular fee for that. And so it's honestly, it feels kind of like customer friendly in a, in a way. It feels like a relatively generous way to approach 
the market. I think that's why they've been growing so quickly as they have. Payments, though, if you haven't been tracking it, is an enormous fintech growth market. And I think the amount of money being made there has really got everyone's eye. Right. I think Stripe's growth really, I think, underscored how huge it is in Square as well. And Right. And these are, in the world of payments, in our world, these are big companies. In the world of payments, these are still small companies, right? And that just kind of speaks to the market opportunity that they can still grow into. Yeah. And now with $35 million, they can do a lot. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious to see how far they can grow with this. If the round was more valued on the potential of the product and the attractiveness of the thesis or on the actual business fundamentals, because they did not share any growth metrics. <laughs> Boo. Um, but aside from that, uh, really smart guys. And there's a lot of, a lot of their investors really believe in them. If that makes sense. There's a lot of people that want you to talk to them. And that's usually a sign of confidence among investors. I see. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that what's also interesting here is, is Phoenix is a direct competitor to Stripe, right? And, and Sequoia is uh, an investor in both companies. I mean, Phoenix is essentially a more bare metal Stripe. Stripe is sort of a more, you drop a line of JavaScript into an app, you have, a, you know, full payments infrastructure. Phoenix is much more bare metal. It's, it's infrastructure, right? So you're taking different parts. In some ways, it's like an AWS for payments. And so you have a lot more customization and they're just charging you sort of a fee instead of a usage fee. They're charging you the SaaS fee. But what's interesting is Sequoia led both. And I'm always curious, like, particularly in such a tight space like payments, where it is in some ways a zero-sum game, like how, how the firm sort of kind of mediated between, you know, Stripe as an investment and, and Phoenix as an investment. I don't think I know payments well enough to really differentiate between the two well enough to make a point. But I will say that the rule against VCs making bets that could run up against each other isn't as hard as it was when I first learned about VC. And I think SoftBank is the most famous example of companies that are willing to make bets that kind of fight one another. Like the Latin American uh, on-demand market is uh, brutal right now and funded on all sides by SoftBank money. But I, I'm not shocked to see that a firm of that size is willing to make directionally similar bets. Yeah, and what, what you often see, it's, it is firm dependent. But in many cases, you know, this is a part of Stripe's business, you could mm -hmm. argue. But at the same time, they could be going after different parts of the market, right? And so for a company of a certain size, Stripe may make a lot of sense for them, mm -hmm. right? And until they get to a certain scale, maybe they don't have the resources to even implement a Phoenix, for example. Yeah, well, Stripe should uh, go public so we can all see how they're doing because it is about time. I mean, how long have we been hearing that Stripe's been doing good? Like, it's been three years of that now. Like, I want to see some numbers. I'm sick of waiting. I think waiting. it's been longer than that. Well, maybe maybe on your side. Yeah. I think it's taken us a little <laughs> bit longer to hear that. Um, but I, I'm, I'm fascinated by Stripe. I mean, they've been a hot stuff for, for a long time now. So, or at least theoretically hot stuff. We would love to see some... Um, so numbers. Um, we're going to talk about a thing called Elodie Games, I think. That's right. Elodie? Elodie? What do you think? Elodie. Elodie Games. Uh, this is the smallest round of the week we're going to talk about. They raised $5 million. Uh, My God, that's like no money at all. I know. That's, that's like literally a house. <laughs> they, raised, they raised one house in Pack Heights uh, and no car and no sales tax. Money from Andreessen and uh, One Up Ventures, which kind of gives away that we're talking about a game-related company. Founded by Christina Norman, David Banks. Critically, uh, they were among the first 20 employees at Riot. Riot, of course, is the studio behind the infamous and popular uh, League of Legends, which is a, oh, Rick, I can do this. It's a, it's a what's the acronym for these things? The battle. MOBA. Yeah, multiple arena. Multiplayer online battle arenas. Thank you. I totally forgot that. I mentioned <laughs> that. Uh, if you haven't played League of Legends or Dota 2 or original Dota, it's a, kind of a 5v5 style game. Pick different champions, compete for objectives. Uh, hugely popular around the world, especially in uh, China, South Korea, America, Europe. It's just a great sport. Big eSport. Yeah. Well, actually, really one of the, one of the first ones that made Twitch big, yeah. going back to earlier days of, of LOL, as it were. Uh, anywho, Danny's going to tell us about what this company does. So, so what's interesting here is, obviously, for first, it's a game studio. So it, it's not a platform play. It, what they're trying to do is to create new sets of social connecting games 
that are cross-platform. And the idea is like, you know, Facebook, you're seeing a lot of usage decline. A lot of other apps are also struggling to, to engage users. And the idea here is to say, hey, how do I feel authentically connected to other teammates on the web, right? How do I actually play games where it's player versus environment. You know, we're all on the same side cooperating against an objective or, or you know, against a boss battle, whatever the case may be. Sure. And so they're, they're starting from scratch, building a new engine that will be cross-platform mobile, console, and computer. I mean, that sounds awesome to me. I mean, it my, does. my fear, though, is that if you have to make a game that works everywhere, is it as good of a game as it could be? I think what's most interesting is, you know, in the past, you kind of think about games as either hardcore or casual, mm. right? And today, I think the, the thing that links everything together is social, actually. And I don't know exactly what they're going to be doing, but I'm really excited to kind of see how they tap into that. And the fact that they are cross cross platform is is also very exciting because you have to be to tap into the mainstream these days. You want to have somebody on PC, you want to have somebody on console, you want to have somebody, you know, largely if you kind of look at what's happening in Asia, a lot of the gaming and esports are are starting to move towards mobile, yes, um, which hasn't necessarily caught up here in the US yet. So I think they're tapping on a lot of really, really interesting consumer trends here. Yeah, I saw I saw a esports broadcast of a mobile game, and you know if like in like League of Legends, there's a big arena and like you know big booths for the two teams and all that, you know, and fire when it's cool. In this case, there was just two guys with their phones out, <laughs> and so they had to like dress it up so it was interesting. So they had these really fancy like armchairs they were sitting in yeah. with like spotlights, and I was like, I know I'm officially old <laughs> because I'm looking at this and going, this is dumb. But in reality, it's, it's hot and huge, and people huge. love these games. And you know, it just proves that I'm now a little bit over the hill. Um, but you know, we're seeing cross-platform with Destiny Two, for example, going cross-save across all this stuff. So I think Fortnite. This is, Fortnite, Fortnite is a great yeah. example of this. Rick, I'm, I'm curious though. I mean, you know, ten years ago, social gaming was a huge industry. You know, Zanga being most famous yeah. is a game studio that raised a huge amount of venture capital, and then there was like this nuclear winter. Like no one right. raised capital for a long time. I think Epic raised how much over the course of their a couple existence? dozen million tops. Right. It wasn't. It, wasn't it was not million. a lot. And then now we're starting to see game studios getting back into the VC's kind of lens. Um, how do you see, see that world? Yeah, I think social gaming as it used to be is mm -hmm. a little bit different than what I think is happening today. Right before it was more about the platform that it was on. It was on top of Facebook. You know, a lot of the social interactions were really tied to monetization and virality yep. versus kind of the the core reason why people were playing these things. I think today it's much more about like, look, instead of hanging out at the mall or going to watch a movie together, we're going to hang out on Discord and have Fortnite going on in the background, <laughs> right? And so it's, it's sort of more of a true meeting place versus like being on top of a different social platform. Yeah, and so what's funny about that is I, that was first described to me about Fortnite and how kids these days, quote, quote, these 12, 13, 14-year-olds were using it as their kind of like neighborhood hangout. equivalent. Right. Like instead of going outside and standing around with sticks, they were just doing this. And I was like, that's kind of cool. And then I realized I was already doing that with Destiny 2. Yep. And my, my, like, my, my adult friends have all moved away. So we game together like twice a week for an hour. Mm -hmm. That's how we stay in touch. And yeah. we, it's absolutely a blast. And uh, to me, it's, it's way better than trying to do a, a weird group FaceTime. Right. You know, which everyone looks terrible and you can't <laughs> just see anything. And, or a house party. Uh, I've actually never done house party. Is that any good? Danny doesn't know. Danny doesn't actually have friends. So <laughs> he's never actually had the reason to. I play, I play what's known as single player role playing games. Is that just what you... <laughs> I can't make any of the jokes that I want to make here because Equity is a family-friendly show, but you can imagine the jokes yourself, fill in the blanks. Um, <laughs> all right, let's, let's go on to something that we talked about, I want to say like back in December, maybe it was November. Superhuman and eventually founders announced $7 million angel fund. We kind of knew this was coming. Now the news is out. Superhuman founder and CEO Rahul Vora and eventually founder Todd Goldberg have put together a $7 million fund. Superhuman, if you're not familiar, is... 
or was the hottest thing in like prosumer productivity SaaS. It's a, it's a paid email tool. It's like 30, 40 bucks a month, Rick. How much is it? I don't think it's that much. I think it's 28 bucks a it's, month. It's whatever Danny just said. It's that many dollars a month. And there's onboarding and it's kind of hands-on and it's really, really popular. And people that have a lot of email uh, swear by it often. And on the back of that momentum, it appears that the CEO is going to also put together this angel fund. And I'm curious, Rick, if one of your portfolio CEOs was to put together a fund on the side, would you be concerned that they were not focused on their chief job, which is building their company? I don't think so. Look, part of building a company is also interacting with the ecosystem, learning from other founders, imparting your wisdom on other founders in the same way that maybe I go home and, and play a round of league, they're mm-hmm. going and advising other founders and investing, right? And so I, I think you do have to have a little bit of, of um, time to kind of peel away from what you're spending 100 hours a week on as a founder. And so I think this is a good way to give back to the community. Okay. That feels generous. <laughs> I think if you're superhuman, you can do both. Ah, see, you knew that was coming at some point. Uh, you know, I would say what's interesting here is, you know, we've seen this rise of scout funds and scout networks over the last couple of years. So a lot of CEOs invest in companies today that, that didn't in the past, right? Because either they didn't have the, the personal capital themselves or there wasn't early liquidity opportunities to be able to invest. And then we just covered, I, I keep bringing this up and I never remember the company's name, but two weeks ago we had an enterprise stage company. Um, front. Front. Uh, which raised exclusively from other CEOs right. so at, at, at a series C that was like 60 or 80 million bucks. It was a serious amount of money. And so to me, this is just another pattern of, of interestingly, a more public version of this where we're actually seeing them raise a fund. We don't actually know who their LPs are. I don't think they announced it in any way. Um, it could actually be other VCs. It could be a lot they of people did, in the community. I think they did yeah. announce it. it was a bunch of other founders yeah. as well. So, so I think what we're seeing is like, you know, uh, some of these folks are becoming kind of super connectors in the community. It's valuable, obviously, because many of Superhuman's customers are other founders in the right. community and other VCs. So in some ways, they're just taking money from their own customers and then start circling them around. I actually think it's brilliant, though, because I think, you know, particularly it, it, when you talk to founders, this is the price point or the, the check size that they really struggle with. It's the 75 to 200K. It's the small seeds. It's the how do you get to MVP? You know, we, we've seen we, we, we've talked a lot about this on the show, but, you know, seed rounds are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, four or five, six million dollars. And that's great if you have traction and MVP and, and sort of product market fit. For the earlier funds, you know, no one else is really able to do this. So maybe Raul and, and Todd, which I think that's literally the name of the fund, is the Raul, Raul and Todd Fund uh, or Angel Fund, will be able to kind of close that gap. And I would also say a lot of founders are doing this anyways without investing, right? And so to also put some skin in the game, I think, Danny, you're right on. There's this theme around, you know, in some ways it adds credibility to have these really strong founders backing your company as well. You know, the analogy for me is like having influencers in your round, right? Well. <laughs> You know, SaaS founders and startup founders that have been successful are, no, are the new influencers for a lot of these companies that are taking these early stage rounds. I agree for the companies that are invested in having capital from these people makes a lot of sense. Like that, I totally get that. That makes perfectly logical, good reason. But like, it's, it's just, Superhuman's a hard company to build. Yeah. They have a lot of work to do. And you know, I, I, my last job was at a startup. And so I, I was there from before the Series A to right after the Series C. And so I've seen how hard that is. And I cannot imagine also running the fund at the same time. And I was just, you know, I, was, I wasn't even in charge. Yeah. So I, maybe, I, maybe I'm being too small-minded here, but to me it just feels like a distraction. I think it's hard to say because, you know, we, we don't know exactly how they operate. And at the same time, in the same way that AWS kind of rose to make creating a company a lot easier, I think there's also a lot of infrastructure out there to help you create a fund. It's and where, maybe where you used to just be making angel investments out of your own pocket, you can wrap it in a fund, and a lot of it is outsourced these days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's happened, it's out. So if you're looking to raise kind of that 
really kind of precede money, I guess we should call it now, that is out there. So feel free to go out and get it. They put money into House. Uh, Which we talked about last week. Yep. Scratchpad and uh, AdQuick. So a couple of names that I know already. So not a bad early set of, uh, of investments. Leaving, though, the early stage behind, let's talk about the IPOs. Because I feel like after a quiet December, if you will, and a kind of a medium January, we've had two debuts now. We've had Casper, the mattress company, and we've also had one medical. What the hell do we call one medical? Kind of a concierge on-demand medical service business, something like that. Healthcare 1.5. Healthcare 1.5. It's not SaaS, though. (laughs) So the big news, though, this week in the IPO world, and I'm sure if you're listening to this, you've heard us talk about it, is that um, Casper went public. They lowered their IPO price range from $17 to $19 a share to $12 to $13, which was, you know, quite a lot lower. And then today they closed at, and I have this in my notes up, they closed at about $13.50, according to, um, according to Google Finance. So it was a debut that was pretty good. I mean, they ended up up 12.5% today. That's slightly better result than I expected, but certainly not where they wanted to price. Lost in valuation, but they had a good first day. One Medical, on the other hand, priced at the lower end of its range and then exploded out of the gate after pricing. I think it was 14. They're now worth 25. And uh, here's my question for, for us. I don't get why One Medical is worth so much more money per dollar of revenue than, than Casper, given that neither one of them is a majority recurring revenue business. Neither one of them is growing particularly quickly. They're both unprofitable and they both don't have SaaS-like gross margins. And yet the market is saying these are so very different that Casper is worth so much less for dollar revenue. And I'm curious if we have any hypotheses to help better understand how the public market is valuing these two formerly private companies. And I want to start with Rick on this one. So I can't say anything specifically about Casper since sure. we're a big shareholder. Look, I think, um, I think you have to find investors that really believe in the overall thesis in the space first and foremost. And if you look at the companies that are going public, you know, these, these public equity investors are doing a lot of analysis on the numbers, right? And so, they have their own theses. They apply different multiples to different margin profiles to different sectors. You can always find people that are more bullish or more bearish mm-hmm. in different business models. And so it really comes down to who's a believer in, in what we're trying to do. And ultimately for these companies that are going public, you know, they're, they're betting on themselves, right? They're putting them out, themselves out into the, into the public sphere and they got to hit their numbers, right? And so no matter where they, they price from an IPO perspective, now it's on them to perform. Yeah, I mean, an IPO is certainly not the end of the road. It's just one pricing event, one fundraising event. And to be clear, I'm not trying to be mean. I, they both priced, they both went public, hats off. It's a big event. It's a big day for the companies. A long time coming. Much work went into it. I, just to me, the, the way One Medical priced conservatively and then exploded was a surprise. Casper then priced conservatively and also did well, but just where they've ended up feels further apart in terms of revenue multiples than I would have. I, th- I think One Medical is like 10 or something, and Casper is like 1.4. I just, I mean, Ali, has there been a lot of DTC IPOs? I, I don't follow the DTC space very closely, but I, I think it's actually one of the first of this whole set of companies to yeah. actually get all the way to the public markets, right? Yes. I, I think one of the, the big challenges when you're the, the, the trailblazer, one of these kind of new spaces, right, is, um, you know, there's been a lot of acquisitions privately. You know, P&G has bought a couple of different brands and certainly some of the other um, uh, folks in the space have been bought out, but we haven't seen a lot go to IPO. And so this is sort of the first company that a lot of investors are sort of taking a look at the numbers they're sort of understanding the new revenue models around marketing and, and sort of direct marketing to consumers and what does that mean for the revenue model. And so I think these kinds of companies are always going to 
I don't want to say struggle, but they're always going to have that extra work to convince in, conv- uh, investors, not just in themselves, but also in the model itself and how it works. We saw the same thing in SaaS, you know, seven, eight years ago where True. no one understood SaaS. It was only a three, four, five X multiple. Now it's 30 as people <laughs> sort of, which maybe, maybe on the high end, but like at the end of the day, like a lot of that just took convincing. It took a whole set of companies to come through. So the question I, to, I would pose to Casper is, you know, we have a bunch of other companies coming up. We, we know at least five or six other companies on the docket for IPO this year in the D2C space. You know, will their kind of roadshows and selling of the D2C model sort of help Casper or hurt it long term? Well, I don't see how it could hurt it. I mean, I, I think more market understanding of how the economics of D2C works will help. I mean, just people better understanding the space that you work in, provided that you're operating well. And I have no reason to believe that Casper isn't. Uh, I think that's got to help. But I mean, maybe you're, maybe this is just a trailblazing moment and they got... You know, they're the first one through the brambles, for lack of a better phrase. I also think I also think there's a lot of concern in the in, in the for shareholders around marketing costs. Um, uh, you know, we saw this with TripAdvisor's last quarter, where uh, marketing costs on Google kind of skyrocketed, and the stock tanked twenty percent in a day. Um, so I, I I do think there's a lot of concern around you know much as we were just talking about with Sandoso. You know, there is a lot of saturation in marketing. Marketing costs are going up for a lot of firms, you know, traffic acquisition. And so, you know, again, a long term, I think investors will sort of come to an equilibrium and it may not be this one. Well, let's go ahead and take Rick off the hot seat so he doesn't have to look uncomfortable about us talking about his portfolio <laughs> company. And uh, let's talk about Asana. You're not in Asana, are you? No. Ah, good. All right. Um, so what do you think about Asana? Yes or no? I'm yes. Just, <laughs> do you use Asana for any of your own individual products? I actually do use Asana at home. Go. My wife is a product executive, so she assigns me things in Asana. That's what my my wife loves to put stuff on my my work calendar because then she'll she knows I'll see it. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, hacks. Um, I bring Asana up because something very exciting happened this week, which is they announced that they have filed privately for a direct listing, and what that means is they've privately filed an S one with the SEC to pursue not an IPO, but a direct listing akin to what Spotify and Slack did. And I'm stoked because we have some notes uh, that they've released about their scale, efficiency, and growth. And I'm going to go for a little bit from memory here, but if you go back to start of 2019, I think it was, they said that after eight successive quarters of revenue growth acceleration, they had crested the 100 million ARR mark some point in 2018, I presume towards the end of the year. Uh, That means that was, you know, 13, 14 months ago, give or take. And that means they're probably larger than 100 million now. Let's say they're going 70% be 170 million ARR, a nice healthy figure. And when I, when I talked to them about a year ago, they, had, they said they had much of the money in the bank. They've been very capital efficient. And that's exciting. That means they're probably close-ish to cash flow break-even. They're growing quite quickly. And it's a kind of another win for some of the early Facebook guys. But also it's a company that I think has kind of done its own thing for a while and has succeeded and has not been as in the limelight as some other enterprise-ish productivity companies. And that's why I'm excited about the, uh, the document. I mean, I, I don't know more than that, but I just wanted to say, like, I'm, I'm hype about this one. And I didn't know it was going to be coming this soon, uh, honestly. I mean, Rick, did you hear any kind of rumblings in the VC world that Asana was about to go? Well, Asana has always been one of those companies that has a phenomenal management team, has a great product that you hear about customers adopting. And uh, it's actually good to be out of the spotlight because that means you're probably capital efficient and you're probably growing well and you actually don't have to be at the whims of the financial markets. And it seems like just from a timing perspective, that's what investors are looking for in the public markets. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to con- contrast this to a One Medical or a Casper, there's no education needed in the markets for a SaaS model like this, right? People understand it really well. And so it actually lends itself well to a direct listing from all of those different, different viewpoints. 
One one thing though about the direct listing, and this is the only bit of this that I couldn't really put together, was I think they raised a, a Series D and a Series E in 2018. They raised a 75 million dollar D and a 50 million dollar E. 90 percent sure that's correct. They put a bunch of capital together, but a while ago now, in terms in venture terms, that was you know ages ago. And if they're going to pursue a direct listing, the implication is that they have plenty of cash. Mm-hmm. So they must either be incredibly efficient. They have a deficit we don't know about. They raise money we didn't hear about, or they're planning on doing uh, a follow-on offering after they direct list to figure out the kind of fair market price. All of which is very exciting to me because I don't know what the answer is, but that's kind of what's in my head. Danny, if you were to put a, put a bet on how big Asana is going to be in terms of ARR when it files, what's your, uh, what's your estimate? Throw uh, us out there. G- 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 I, I, 150. 150. All right. I'll say 175. I, I, I think what the, the, the real story here, though, is it's a 2009 company, right? So we, we obviously talk about a lot of these quick pop SaaS companies. You know, Slack was founded what, as Tiny Spec in 2012 and, you know, kind of reconfigured itself in 2014 and kind of went public a couple of years later. I think Asana has been like the little engine that could. It's actually a sign, you know, as a core product, it's still the same core product. It's still doing the same thing. It's been 10 years now. And it sounds like that the AR is in a good shape. It's raised $215 million in capital. It just seems like they've done kind of this consistent growth over a long period of time. And they really kind of figured it out somewhere in the middle of that kind of realm. And so to me, it's just a sign that for at least for Dustin Moskovitz, who was at Facebook. Mm-hmm. You and know, Justin for, Rosenstein. And Justin Rosenstein. You know, it, it's a sign that they really just kept going, you know, and the whole team kept, just kept going. You know, there wasn't really sort of a one-hit wonder and they sort of ran away from from the project. And it was, it was very much a thesis-driven company. How they thought about work was how they built the product, which is how they've kind of kept doing it. And I, I think that's impressive that they haven't seemingly been to the whims of what's popular all of a sudden in the world. Before we talk about podcasts, though, in a meta sense, Monday.com, which is not a direct competitor to what Asana does, but is in a kind of related space, uh, I, I believe has also announced they've reached 120 million ARR after announcing $100 million before. So we're seeing these companies with broad shoulders begin to kind of brag about their scale. And I, I think that means we're going to be reaching out the IPO level with a lot of firms, yeah. which is exciting. I mean, because a lot of these companies we've been hearing about forever, and I want to see the, uh, what's behind the curtain. So last but not least this week, uh, it's finally going to happen. Spotify is going to buy Ringer, which is a sports, sports podcast thing? Sports, pop culture, entertainment. Network. 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 Spotify, of course, is at the whims of the big record labels. They have relatively stagnant gross margins in the 25% range. You buy a bunch of podcasts, you bring people on, you have stickier users, better economics, you can turn profit down the road. Buying Ringer, to me, makes a lot of sense, but I'm kind of curious if our, if our view of this is optimistic. Danny, you're a sports guy. What do you think? <laughs> He's not a sports guy. You're such an <laughs> I, I like hosting the show. This is fun. <laughs> uh, look, I, 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 we've talked about this a little bit before. Spotify needs exclusive content to compete in a marketplace in which they have exactly the same library as every other competitor in the marketplace. Apple Music, Spotify, everyone else has the exact same songs available. And so the only way to differentiate your subscription is through with exclusive content. And, and up until recently... They had not kind of focused on exclusive content. And then in the last couple of weeks, we had the Ringer. We had rumors of the Ringer. And then the other, they bought out um, one of the other podcast networks. Gimlet. Uh, Gimlet Media. That was uh, last year, though. Yep. Last year. Well, last year was a couple of weeks ago, Alex. Uh, but I, I do think that Spotify, you know, much like every other video streaming service, has wanted to build out a, a library. Now it looks like they have the cash and revenues from their IPO and direct listing to be able to do so. I think it's very smart. I mean, you look at how, for example, SiriusXM, brought on Howard Stern, kind of built around that. You know, original content is really important these days, and there's a big war going on. I think, you know, Spotify has the edge from the standpoint of audience and really focusing on audio. And so I think they're going to continue doubling down on audio, and we'll see if they expand. 
What's most interesting to me is do they expand even beyond audio for the next purchase? Break that down. Do you mean like video? Video. It could be all sorts of different things, right? Um, and then they jump into the fray with all the other big players. So then Spotify becomes more like a, a bundle that, right. I, that I buy into. And that would allow them to increase the price point. Yep. And then just, mm-hmm. just to put this back into gaming terms for, for you and I, like if you think about the, the talent war in the streaming space, we've right. seen Microsoft's Mixer drop Microsoft-sized checks to yes. acquire very non-Microsoft-looking people uh, to kind of come over to their streaming platform to help build a market share over there. We're seeing Facebook Gaming, YouTube Gaming, all kind of compete with Twitch, which is owned, of course, by Amazon. So we're seeing the biggest players in the world, you know, battle it out for what boils down to consumer minutes. And it's audience, right? It's, it's audience, it's brand. If you think about it, you know, the number of, uh, the amount of audience that now comes onto the Spotify platform, they're comparing that to, if I just went out and did my sort of standard direct to consumer marketing play on Instagram and Facebook, you know, what would that cost me? And here you're also getting that original content. So I I think it's a very smart purchase for them. Yeah. I mean, Spotify has, you know, hundreds of millions of active listeners. They have, I think over a hundred million paid subscribers. I mean, the, the numbers on Spotify are tremendous. And so if you are, you know, Bill Simmons with the ringer, and you did 15 million in revenue back in 2018 and Spotify goes, cool. What if we just doubled your budget and gave you 10 times the audience and also put you up on all of our banners in app? I mean, it's kind of a hard thing to say no to because yeah. you can just do so much more in front of so many more people. I'm curious if we'll see more of this. Of course, uh, Apple podcast is still, I think the, the largest player by volume in the English podcast market space, at least according to equity analytics uh, that I see. Um, but one last little thing on this is that Spotify spent a ton of money on podcast deals. The Gimlet and the other deal they did were like 400 to $500 million last year. And um, there's some reason to think that this one is going to work because I, I dug through the, the analytics for this show on Spotify and they have some really cool stuff. They actually have a little chart that shows you how long people listen, like what percent of people make it to the end. Uh, and so they have some really deep stuff because they own the whole stack. Uh, and so I think they have a lot of the right investments being put into place to build a, a really kick butt podcasting platform. So I'm excited to see where this all goes up, but I just realized we need to wrap up. So Rick, thank you for coming back. Thank you for having me again. We'll see you in like another 1.9 years, whatever it is. Something like 120 that. episodes. 120 episodes. <laughs> if we go to daily, you'll be here every quarter. We're not going to daily. Uh, Danny, thank you as well. And uh, it's good to be back in the SF studio. Absolutely. And uh, we'll see you all on Monday morning. Goodbye. This week's episode was produced, recorded, and edited by Christopher Gates. Our executive producer is Henry Pickavet, and a special thanks to TC's head of studio, Yashad Kulkarni.